The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. I'm Natalie Orpet, Executive Editor of Lawfare. Today, we're bringing you a special podcast hosted by longtime Lawfare contributors David Chris and Brian Cunningham. We hope you enjoy it. How do we actually array the technologies, the role assignments, and the people so that we create the most defensible proposition that has the most, the, the biggest possible chance of serving the needs, the interest of the users of that digital infrastructure? How do we understand how it's actually being employed? And how do we then, using the assets inside cyberspace, actually defend it, right? That's the job that the National Cyber Director had. And it was more coach than quarterback, using Jen Easterly's language. Uh, the operational activities were largely assigned out to entities like CISA, the FBI, and such. So how does that all work at the National Security Council? That's where grand strategy and perhaps the kind of the use of those extraordinary instruments is largely defined. For cyber in particular, much like the Secretary of Defense does that for the military domain of interest, for the cyber domain in particular, you've got a national cyber director. And the execution of that then is done in the employment phase by the components. Is that complicated? You bet. Kind of what we're trying to do is to define the picture, but it's the video that matters. And in, in an execution, it all does sort itself out. I'm David Chris, And I'm Brian Cunningham. And this is the Lawfare Podcast, February 21st, 2023. Chris Inglis has had an illustrious career in the defense of this country, serving as an Air Force General, Deputy Director of the National Security Agency, and most recently, as the first National Cyber Director in the White House. Chris stepped down from his position last week and gave us his first interview as a private citizen, and we talked with him about a wide range of cyber topics, including the newly minted National Cyber Strategy. Chris also talks about protection of critical infrastructure, cyber insurance, competition in the international front, and many other issues. It's the Lawfare Podcast, February 21st, Chris Inglis. Obviously, lots to cover, but let's just start here. Chris, what are you most proud of as our first national cyber director? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I think the thing I'm most proud of, um, having served as the national cyber director, is the team that's been assembled to take the work forward. That team is accountable for mobilizing a whole-of-nation effort to put cyber in its proper place, to make sure that cyber supports the needs of its users, vice the other way around. Um, doctrine's been the missing piece here, and that's going to be solved by people much more than technology. So, Chris, when you when you showed up for work on your first day after uh, being confirmed, 
how many people were there in the office? There was one that? person there. <laughs> <laughs> one person. When I was at the end of that day doubting whether that one person was fully there, right? So <laughs> right. <laughs> it was an interesting start. How many people are were there when you uh, said your farewells yesterday? Just about 80. We've hired 95. Some have come and gone, having completed their details. Um, so there are about 80 there at the moment. And in the next few weeks, we'll bring in probably a dozen more. I saw some great images, Chris, of uh, what we used to refer to at the National Security Council as the clapping out ceremony, where you walked down the Navy steps and people applauded you. And I, one particularly moving one was somebody who wrote in the caption, I don't even work for this guy, but he's just such a good guy. I showed up. Well, we had uh, hiring forms available. So we were hiring people as I walked <laughs> down the steps. Uh, actually, that was a very pleasant surprise. I'd not experienced that before. I'd heard it um, once, I think when Ron Klain left a week ago. But for those not familiar with the Navy steps, that's that very grand staircase that's on the east side of the old executive office building, uh, the Eisenhower building. And as I came out that door, intending to simply walk off the campus quietly, um, there must have been 80 or 90 people um, up and down those steps. And uh, it was just uh, it was one of those teary moments uh, when realizing that I had come very much alone, of course, not alone in the greater scheme of things, but there was no one in the building who was associated with that organization when I got there. And now on leaving, there's this extraordinary workforce, very motivated, very forward leaning, very much the kind of people that will run the next lap at a much greater speed. I was overwhelmed. Yeah, you've assembled a, a great team. I'm curious, though, after a, a half century of public service, thank you for that. Why did you decide this was the right time for you to retire? Or was this kind of the plan all along? That's a great question. I, the more illuminating question might be the one you suggest, which is why I took the office in the first place. Um, <laughs> yeah. Of course, this uh, this office was um, the idea of Congressman Langevin a dozen years ago. But it really got new life and was born of the Solarium Project in the National Defense Authorization Act in January of 21, instantiated in law. Um, as a member of the Solarium Commission that had noodled this through a lot of debate and discussion um, and given some life to its final shape and form, I don't know whether I either won the lottery or drew the short straw to ensure that the <laughs> idea was brought into reality. Um, so I, I embraced it, um, stood into it. It was, I think, to me, it felt like a gift to be able to take this then, the first lap. And I took it with three goals foremost in mind. One, to stand up and populate the office so that it was viable, valuable, and durable. Two, to build out the relationships, because this is an organization that must work by, with, and through. Um, so right. to build out those relationships so it could make the difference that was intended. And three, given that we were in the midst of a reset of U.S. government thinking on what cyber is, how we should perhaps address its needs and what the government's role in that was, the third thing was to make sure that that reset was codified in an adorable statement, the National Cybersecurity Strategy, which has passed the cabinet, should be signed out in a few days. Yeah, so we're going to turn to that in just a minute. Possibly by the time our listeners hear this, it will already be out. So some of us will look smarter than others probably <laughs> when it's out. But since you uh, had one of the principal pens on the strategy, I definitely want to get, we want to get all of your thoughts on that. But just one last sort of framing question before we get to that. And you've sort of implied the answer, but are there one or two things that you feel you left unfinished in that job that we should expect to come to fruition under your successor? Yeah, I, there are a couple of things that I would have said were at the top of the queue and what's next, but but I have to be humble enough to know that I don't think I or anyone could have addressed all the things that must be addressed 
in two years, 10 years or 20, this is going to be the, the work that goes on forever. That being said, yeah. top of the queue would be to implement the national cybersecurity strategy. Time is going to be the most precious commodity once we define what should be done and by whom. An executive order to codify in a more durable basis what the national cyber director and the office does. The statute, I think, has an authoritative view, um, but the facts on the ground uh, must be addressed in terms of what's the relationship of that office to the various other entities that are already there. An executive order is going to be hugely helpful in that. And then teed up right after um, the national cybersecurity strategy is the creation of a workforce strategy. We're going to call it the cyber workforce education strategy. But that being said, it's really about upskilling everyone in this space so that they can take full advantage of the space. I think that's what's next. So, Chris, tell us if you can. Uh, we know it's not out yet, but tell us what you can about the new cyber strategy that's forthcoming. What's in it? Yeah, I'd be quite pleased to foreshadow what's in it. First, let me give a little context. Um, it's not the strategy of any one organization or, for that matter, any one person. It resulted from an engagement that I think now numbers over 400 separate engagements, much of which was in the private sector. It attempts to represent a whole-of-nation approach to getting cyberspace to properly serve its users, but it's done in an international context. There are five pillars in it. One of those pillars is dedicated, devoted to international relationships. Um, the two big shifts that are in this strategy are, are perhaps the most important bit. The first part is that it puts the assignment of responsibility on the back of those able to bear it. Perhaps give an analogy in this regard. We all know that car owners don't design and install their own airbags or form neighborhood associations to fix potholes, remove road hazards, or remove drunk drivers from highways. Cyber shouldn't be any different. We need to push that responsibility to those who build, supply, integrate these systems um, so that that responsibility is then borne by those who can deliver inherently resilient kind of technologies and the practices on top of those. The second big shift kind of complementing that is to incentivize resilience by design across all three facets of cyberspace, um, not just in the technology, but in the accountability of who's accountable for what and the people skills that are required to make sure that people know how to take full advantage of cyberspace. On that second big shift, we acknowledge that we actually, in the present moment, respond very well to crisis after crisis. And for those that are close to this, you would have experienced Log4j a Christmas or a holiday season ago. And we did magnificent in making sure that that kind of inherent vulnerability that was discovered in open source software didn't hurt us. But if we did that perfectly, we just lose more slowly. And we're not going to shoot our way out of this. And so the ability to find and impose costs on transgressors, while important, um, needs to be complemented with resilience by design so that we avoid some of these perils. Of those two big shifts in hand, it's our hope that this is seen as a package, not a menu, um, such that when we do any one of these things, we hope that we do all of these things so we can have the concurrent application of all of the authorities, the capabilities, all the heads in the room, so that if you're a transgressor, you got to beat all of us to beat one of us. But you want to say that in a positive way, make it such that each of us can contribute to the defense of all of us or vice versa. Those are those are major shifts. Let me just drill down uh, with a couple of questions, if you don't mind. Unfortunately, you are in the company of two lawyers and law is in the name of this podcast. So I need to ask you, when you talk about shifting responsibility to those most able to bear it, can you give us some operational thoughts on that? In other words, is it 
for example, litigation? Is it, are we proposing new law that shifts legal responsibility? Is it more of a moral shift? Well, what, what, how does that get operationalized? Yeah, typically three ways, um, maybe more, but I'll just kind of bin it in three ways that um, you make shifts in who is doing what, kind of shifts in the responsibility allocation. The first is self-enlightenment, and you've actually begun to see some of that in this space that uh, suppliers, vendors, integrators have begun of their own volition to do things that would deliver inherent resilience and robustness, not just the primary features associated with software or hardware. The second is market forces, um, where it becomes a competitive advantage or a disadvantage to not kind of make the resilience and robustness investments. And we need to let that play out. We need to make sure that we incentivize that to the maximum extent possible. That's why I mentioned that second big shift. But at the end of the day, if there are attributes, features of the architecture, and again, not just technology, but in role assignment and people skills that market forces or self-enlightenment don't deliver, then we need to reserve the right as we have in every other system of interest to both specify that and then to assign that responsibility. Um, that brings in the kind of the devilish word regulation. Um, regulation comes in many forms, but there is the prospect of that, which must be done with a high degree of consultation. So we get it right, must be done so that we harmonize it to make it efficient. And at the end of the day, make it such that if you behave well in this space, you get the benefits that are attributable to behaving well, as opposed to it's all cost, no benefit. So a couple of things on that, Chris. I remember you describing a similar three-part approach in your confirmation hearings back in the day. And I wondered at the time, and I wonder today, do you see those three approaches, enlightened self-interest, market forces, and regulation, as sort of hierarchical and, and to be done in sequence in every case? Or are there some problems that by their very nature, you know that one approach is going to be better than the other, and you may as well just get started with that approach? Yeah, I agree with you. I, I think that they occur concurrently, but, but there is a sequence. There's a hierarchy. We want to let self-enlightenment play out. Uh, we want to, and, and you have to guide that to some degree by making sure we understand what are the important attributes, the salient qualities of these systems. So we need to kind of work together to figure out what those points of influence might be, but let self-enlightenment have its play. Uh, then let market forces have their play and then regulate not for regulation's sake, but because it's what's required to extend um, those two benefits that you've already accrued to their proper destination. Uh, I think that if we do that, those who are regulated, and, and again, they must be consulted with, will, I think, participate in that to the extent that they can and they should. If we start with regulation, then we're in a completely different place, and, and that is not helpful. Yeah, that's right. And I, I think your point about self-enlightenment is, is well taken. I, re I remember particularly after Solar Winds, a number of the big, big tech company executives testified to the Hill to the effect of, yeah, you know, I guess it probably is time for some sensible regulation. This is more than any one company can figure out and handle on their own. And so if you have the right type and degree of consultation and smart lawmaking, then that probably will be have to have to be part of this of the solution. If I might, I, I once said, and I think I looking back, it was a somewhat flippant remark. Somebody said, what keeps you awake at night? And I was hoping that I could say what um, Jim Mattis said, which is nothing. <laughs> I keep other people awake at night. Right. That's that's not my fortune. I said, uh, proactive ambivalence, um, that, that there are any number of people who can observe that something is amiss, 
but then they immediately assume or verbalize that, hey, I hope somebody else fixes this, not realizing that they have a part to play. I think that we have begun to remove that ambivalence. We've worked very hard at the White House, but others have as well, um, to essentially reveal what the kind of the the truths are in this space, um, that there's a lot of threat in this space and that there is a concomitant amount of vulnerability that that threat might take advantage of. And when you add those two up, then uh, the parties who should do something about that and you show it to them, the parties who should do something about that begin to say, I got it. Uh, now I need to know what I should do because I'm not entirely certain what the points of influence are. What are the levers that I should um, attach myself to so that I change the needles on the dashboard? So I think that we're in the middle of that play. Yeah. I mean, an implicit part of this that maybe our listeners will be interested in is, I mean, this really is, as you said before, a whole of nation approach that's required because it isn't like the good old days maybe of the 1990s when the U.S. government, NSA, or other entities that you're familiar with, you know, just were so far out in front on capabilities, sophistication, and the like maybe. But even if that wasn't true today, there's no question the private sector is a huge player in terms of infrastructure, in terms of ability, in terms of access to information. It's got to be a partnership. So the sort of careful approach to regulation seems to me to be very much a part of that whole of nation approach. Is that how you think about it too? Exactly. The private sector is the dominant player. And and unlike um, the global war on terror some 20 years ago, where most of the tools um, were in the hands of the government and therefore the private sector could innovate and provide capacity, but the government employed those. It's now almost wholly in the private sector which innovates, um, kind of creates, deploys, sustains, defends, right? The systems of interest to us um, to include most of the critical systems, those that deliver things that are important to our health and safety. So the government has to move to a supporting role and then with the deftest possible touch, ensure that the standards are defined and that they're enforced, but allow the private sector to continue to be innovative and agile in surprising us through their performance, because we're not going to be right if we simply specify the compliance or the checklist. Yeah, we, we you know, both uh, Brian and I, obviously, and many others read Jen Easterly's recent foreign affairs essay, which talks about some of these points you're making, resilience by design and assigning responsibility to those who can most easily bear it to include manufacturers of, of connected devices. It, it was interesting because when we read that, we we experienced, I think, a similar sense that she was being very careful about the big hammer of regulation. So, I mean, is there an outright call in the forthcoming strategy for for either statutory or other strong regulation, or is that still being held in reserve for the most part? No, there is a call. There is a call, but but it, it, it must be taken in context. You can go in and find the word regulation in the document. and if you, I'm sure somebody will do a search for it, right? That's right. Somebody will do a search for it. And if they put it in the context of the word before and the word after and extract it and then run to the microphone, it will do a disservice to the document and I think to the right context of regulation. Regulation has to be done, again, with the lightest possible touch, but no lighter. Um, we don't regulate for regulation's sake. We regulate because we must. Um, It must be done with a degree of consultation with those who are to be regulated, because otherwise the regulators really don't know um, what the right things are to regulate, what the right properties are, and how to get that so that it's actually effective, not simply efficient, but effective. And there must be a degree of harmonization so that an entity that shows up in multiple of these regulators' lenses doesn't have to actually satisfy 
the one thing that they're supposed to do well five different times. That that last point is key. David and I are both practitioners of cyber law and most of our clients, I think it's fair to say, while they're not dramatically in favor of regulation in general, they would love one, to take an example, they would love one federal breach disclosure law as opposed to 50 inconsistent state laws that they have to comply with. I agree. And, and so you, you've talked, that's an important um, differentiation, which is that there are regulations that are imposed on operators, sometimes users, and regulations, um, requirements that are specified on those who provide the kit, the gear that is used by those operators. And we've really not addressed that latter group as well, whereas full similes we've addressed the, the former group, right? So we need to make sure that we address both of those and that harmonization is achieved across both of those categories. And to that point, Chris, you mentioned earlier a successful counterattack operation that involved vulnerabilities in open source software. Can you maybe walk our listeners through a little bit what the issues are with open source software, the memory safety problem, and what manufacturers and assemblers and coders should be doing about it? Well, first and foremost, I think that um, we need to acknowledge that open source software and the innovation that comes from the many hands on these kind of these various artifacts is, I say, almost an unalloyed good. It's an unalloyed good if they at the same time are creating pieces and parts that can be composed into systems of interest that have the ability to become sufficiently resilient and robust that they can be defended. But unfortunately, many of the people who code and populate libraries, software libraries, from which the pieces and parts are extracted to build systems of interest, they don't think that security is is their responsibility. And they therefore don't kind of think their way through is the piece of code I just wrote something that will perform robustly in the presence of all manner of threats, sometimes complacency, sometimes literally nature, and sometimes a human adversary. And unless they think about that in those formative moments, then the people who are downstream going to pull things from this library and put it together, um, they can't make up for those deficiencies. They, they can't actually put those pieces back together. Humpty Dumpty can't be made whole. Um, and so this is in part, um, maybe a large part, a cultural phenomenon, which is how do we make it such that if you're writing the pieces and parts, whether it's firmware or software, maybe some pieces of hardware, that you feel um, a responsibility to participate in the larger effort to create resilient, robust systems? I give this analogy on occasion. It's a somewhat long one. I'll make it short. But I was trained as a mechanical engineer many years ago. And, and in those days, in the 1970s, if I went out and built a system that um, did what the mechanical specifications required, but it spewed toxins into an adjacent river. That would have been regrettable, but that wouldn't have been my responsibility. It was somebody else's responsibility to come along and to deal with the after effects. Now, even then, I think most people would have said, yeah, but ethically, didn't you kind of have a pang of, of guilt? That's not true today. Today, I think we teach engineers at their earliest possible moment that what they do must be ecologically sound, environmentally unsound, as well as meeting the principles of engineering that we've known for millennia. We need to have the same view in terms of how we do software, hardware, and the like. Um, so you've mentioned memory safety or memory unsafe coding languages. The majority of languages today don't actually have protections when the code gets into memory that allow them to be resilient and robust in the presence of adversaries who can reach in and do something at that moment in the computer's lifespan. It is eminently possible to make memory safe coding schemes. We just haven't done it. 
Why? Because we think security is something that can happen downstream. It can be added later as an applique. Uh, we've increasingly learned that that is not the case. We can't fix these problems in execution. We have to fix them in design. Um, so we need to actually go back and say, are there some um, principles, some frameworks that we can describe so that we can begin to induce a cultural shift? There might be the possibility of, after that, specifying this with sufficient clarity that we achieve efficiency and effectiveness by requiring um, some, some standards. But I don't think we know enough yet to do that. I'd be happy just to do the first thing, which is really where the effort is at the moment. So this is a way, again, that you're sort of talking about doing the two big shifts you described earlier, which is assigning responsibility to those who can bear it and incentivizing them to create resilience by design, avoiding, I guess, what the economists will call externalities. Uh, and you've got a need for the private sector to do that because they do so much. And you've got things like SBOM and, and other kinds of ways to try to protect the integrity or verify the integrity of things like that. And that's why you need the private sector in here using any or all of the three levers that you talked about. I mean, is is that like how the whole of the cyber community and the government you think is approaching this? Yeah, so, so the private sector has to do this because no one else can do this. The government writes a little bit of code, but it's a pittance <laughs> you know, a, a associated with what then the private sector would write. Most of the systems, even that government uses in national security systems, are built of commodity pieces and parts. And the bespoke pieces that the government might add can't make up for deficiency in the underlying foundation. That's equally true for critical functions that are delivered across electrical grids or pipelines and so on and so forth. So the private sector has to do this. Um, the private sector then, if it feels like it has a responsibility to play its role in that, can, through our earlier discussion, do that through self-enlightenment, maybe market forces, and then with a degree of consultation, let's figure out what remains to be done. Hopefully that's a relatively small part of the package. But, but I think the two of you can probably remember many years ago when Volvo started crashing cars into walls and showing um, their, their end customers. They were like, what is that all about? Uh, that was the moment that market forces entered the game in terms of selling cars. Right? Volvo said, our car is safer than the car to the left or the right of us. You might want to buy it on that, on that basis. Self-enlightenment had given way to market forces. Of course, some specifications about seatbelts or safety bags stood in. The combination of all of that borne by the private sector was the only way that we could make transportation systems, not just cars, safe enough that they are defensible. That moment in time also gave way to one of my favorite bands, the Crash Test Dummies. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. 
Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. You, you've talked about, you know, not responding to cyber predations with only cyber responses and the possibility of that. But is there a role for the private sector in responding to cyber attacks? If so, what what would that be? And is it the fun stuff like hacking back? Does the strategy talk about any of that? Or can you talk about any of that? I can. Um, and I'm now a private citizen, so I can talk about <laughs> You this. can say whatever you want, right? <laughs> Great. Um, I would say um, it, this conversation is a really interesting conversation when you get to that spot, which is that people are like, so can we hack back? And the mind immediately turns to what do we do when we get into the kind of the shoals? What do we do when we get into a rough patch? Um, but I think that we're increasingly of the opinion that defense can be the new offense, meaning let's actually prevent these things so that we win the battle, whatever that challenge might be before it's fought. And and so in the discussions we've just had, it's very clear that private sector entities can alone um, essentially increase the resilience and the robustness. We won't prevent all calamity in this space, but they can prevent quite a lot. Um, And so I do think that the private sector has a huge kind of opportunity and increasingly a responsibility to help us actually navigate these crises by helping us steer clear of them in the first place. Um, So if you're a cloud service provider, if you're a software vendor, if you're an integrator, um, what can you do to make it such that we kind of build resilience and robustness in, we detect it at the earliest possible moment, and we collectively, collaboratively participate in finding and evicting that at the earliest possible moment. Um, So shifting responsibility from the end user to the manufacturer for a minimum basic level of cybersecurity is important to all of that. I think that what we've seen in the Ukrainian context is that they've actually defended a, an architecture, a technology architecture that didn't look like it was easily defendable quite well. Why? Um, because they have a degree of expertise that is you know, off the charts. Um, maybe it's because the Russians have been training them for eight years you know, by attacking their digital infrastructure. And they have an agility in that expertise that allows them to manage and defend their architecture better than anyone else. But the third part is, is perhaps the most interesting, which is the Ukrainians have effected a collaboration with the private sector within the rule of law, within the terms of service that the Russians now have to beat um, the Ukrainians, Microsoft, Cisco, ESET, any number of other vendors um, in order to beat the one party that they're after. None of that involves hackback. None of that involves a private entity standing into an inherently governmental role. It's just delivering on the terms of service under reasonable or foreseeable conditions. If you see a wiper virus coming across the near horizon, leave it to your imagination as to how you might know it's coming. Um, The vendor alone often is, is the only party that could prevent that by essentially diagnosing it, patching it, and deploying that patch. That's what I see as the increasing role of the private sector. And to do that in collaboration with a government that may on occasion have information that is actionable only by the private sector is, I think, consistent with the current understanding of roles and responsibilities, but multiplicative, um, kind of geometrically multiplicative in terms of the leverage that we achieve by doing that together. So you got to beat all of us to beat one of us. So Paul Nakasone would say the private sector is really part of defend forward and persistent engagement, not by any particular effort, but because they're actually there. 
and they have to play a role, and it is a big role in defense doctrine in the cyberspace. That's true, but we just need to be careful about not creating agency to have them execute inherently governmental functions um, with some agility or initiative on their own part. We, we don't want to put them in that place, but there's quite a lot they can do within their terms of service um, that is is what automobile manufacturers do. Honda notifies me if I've got a bad airbag and they fix it, right? So how do we make sure that vendors who do something similar in cyberspace have the same view? Yeah, and if you make Jeeps for the American military or if you make cloud uh, services for the Ukrainian government, you know, you're going to have an incentive to make those systems continue working. I was uh, I was involved in the first national strategy to secure cyberspace 20 some years ago, and, and I've tracked these things fairly closely. And I, I my view is, based on, Chris, what you're saying and everything else that we've heard and read, there are some pretty significant doctrinal changes um, in this strategy that you've talked about. And there's also, I would say, the maybe the strongest sense of urgency uh, and threat awareness that we've seen in any strategy. And I wonder if you could talk to our listeners a little bit about what may be driving that, in particular, the so-called quantum decryption threat. We had a federal law about it. We've got executive orders. We've got national security memoranda. What is that? And how does that factor into the strategy? Yeah, so that, that is a part of the larger strategy, but um, I think many of the listeners on this will know this um, very well, but it's likely that quantum computing is going to come about in the next five to 50 years. I don't know when, but but in, in kind of probably within the lifetime of many of the people listening to this. Um, and when it does, you know, it will be a huge boon to mankind. It does some things particularly well, but one of the things it really does well is factoring. And, and the ability to factor large numbers uh, to try to figure out what their component pieces might be, you know, is something that because it's hard today, the encryption that protects the internet, financial transactions and everything to the left or the right of that will then be weak, weak enough that a quantum computer can take it apart and reveal things that heretofore we thought were kind of, we could keep the secret in the presence of massive processing power but in the face of a quantum computer, no longer. And so what do we do about that? Because many of the things that we encrypt in cyberspace are not just intended to be encrypted for the next five minutes while we conduct some transaction, but we obscure these things so that that secret is safe for five to 50 years. Um, the US government's classified systems, typically when they encrypt something, it's a 25 year standard. And so for that, we're probably already inside the window of concern. Now, it turns out that there are encryption schemes that are quantum resistant that even if you had a quantum computer today and you applied it against something encrypted with one of those schemes, you'd have the same kind of hard problem that today's attackers have. Um, it's time for us to get on with implementing those encryption schemes so that we're safe against a future quantum computer that would attempt to reveal the secret of yesterday's encrypted material. Um, so I think we're already inside the window of concern. We need to do this with a great sense of urgency. Right, because it's pretty clear that China and other adversaries are doing what's being called snatch and decrypt later, where they know they can't decrypt massive amounts of data, but they are assuming five minutes, five years, 50 years from now, they will be able to. So you, it's not enough to just secure the data for today. You have to secure it against future threats as well. That's right. That's exactly right. Any thoughts on potential export control related or national security control related issues with the technology that is being developed in America to make quantum decryption harder. I know you were around for the so-called clipper chip debate, 
back uh, in the late 90s about uh, how much we should classify and or restrict export of encryption. Is there any analog to that here or is it just the free market's going to do what it's going to do? I think there's a direct analog to that. So, so I well remember the clipper chip days. Um, <laughs> and, and I think we were transitioning from a moment when encryption really was a tool that was only interesting to financiers and the government. And therefore, controlling it wasn't of great concern to the matting public to a period where encryption underpins just about everything people care about in terms of safety and security on the broader Internet. And, and the first idea by the U.S. government was how do we actually maintain a degree of control on this, but release it you know, with some degree of um, continued control to the matting public? It didn't work. Right. You, you just could not control encryption because it, it had become something that was it was necessary to treat it as a commodity so that we could achieve a commodity scale degree of safety and security. I think the same thing's true here, um, that we need to make sure that we're pushing the deployment of these quantum um, safe encryption schemes, as opposed to trying to figure out how to control and meter them out. Um, we're going to need various parties who don't know that they're a part of this, this deployment to use it, deploy it, so that when we, a year or two or 10 from now, reach for that piece um, we find that they've already built in something that is inherently resilient and robust as we integrate it into our larger system. And I don't think that quantum-resistant technology is that big a secret in terms of how one might do it. Now, the implementation, you know, which is always where the quality comes from, that might be a bigger deal. And we might reserve the right to say, we'll publish the algorithm on some of these things, but the implementation to be safe and sure for our nearest and dearest secrets uh, we'll do those things and perhaps retain that implementation for our own benefit. But but I think like the Clipper experience, we're going to find that controlling it perhaps is 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 not a good idea. Deploying it is a better idea. Right. And the algorithms, uh, the quantum resistant algorithms, of course, are not the entire universe of quantum resistant technologies. So even if the algorithms are publicly available for open source verification, there are ways to implement them, as you suggest, using both policy and technology that's not so obvious. Right. And I think that for those very high-end systems, let's say that we're going to use encryption as we do today to protect um, the safety of nuclear weapons, we will not be giving away the code or the implementation of those openly kind of visible algorithms. We won't be giving that away. But that's a very, very small niche, an important small niche um, in the larger scheme of things. Yep. So we talked a little bit about the issue of hacking back by private entities. I gather from reporting that the strategy may also take a little bit more of an aggressive position on U.S. government offensive cyber operations and a little bit of a different position than maybe has been taken in the, in the past. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, I think there's going to be a component of the strategy that talks about disrupting and dismantling threat vectors. But again, we, we shouldn't let our mind's eye run quickly to cyber on cyber activities. A cyber response to a cyber aggression is an important piece of the whole, but it's one of many tools. And so we need to think about how do we actually deploy our legal remedies, our diplomatic remedies, our financial sanctions. Um, sometimes just a bully pulpit will work. How do we deploy all of that and, and the active work of the private sector within their terms of service, within the rule of law, to disrupt and dismantle threat actors? So, so I think that you could see that as potentially more aggressive. 
I think it just acknowledges at the end of the day, the systems that we're intending to build and deploy in the future will be hopefully more defensible, but never secure, never perfectly safe. There will be transgressions. We need to deal with those. And a whole of society approach says that we need to be able to find, to isolate, and to evict those threats using all the instruments of power, and hopefully in an international context, not a U.S. unilateral activity. Chris, can I ask you a question that I know is near and dear to Brian's heart, and that is as one of the ways of encouraging good behavior and appropriate uh, exercise of responsibility, what, if anything, does the strategy say or what can you say about cyber insurance? We've had terrorism insurance and so forth in the past. Is there something going on with cyber insurance our listeners ought to know about? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, The strategy doesn't have the answers on cyber insurance, but it believes cyber insurance is part of the answer. And so having dodged that bullet a little bit, I'll I'll just offer that just in In just about every other system of interest where health and safety comes to mind, we've seen that insurance can have kind of a a salutary effect. But the components of an insurance scheme, whether it's in cyber or or someplace else, you know, it's, it's not just that it exists, but it exists with certain characteristics. Fulsome participation so that you have a diverse marketplace. The sufficient amount of data that characterizes the system and its threats parties who are willing and able to enter in and ensure that risk, and a definition and instantiation of practices that might reduce that risk. The challenge in cyber is it's very hard to isolate the high-end risk. Those of us who experienced WannaCry, which was courtesy of North Korea and not Petya in 2017, uh, realized it didn't need to be the target to be the victim, right? That these are kind of indiscriminate threats that often have very broad impact. Um, And so the premise that we need to consider is whether we can take that high, high risk off the table by having a backstop and then allow the market forces that kind of can be advanced by fulsome participation, data gathering, kind of encouraging parties to enter the space, whether that then takes over so that we have a system that doesn't simply transfer risk from one party to another, a party unable to bear it to a party able to bear it, but it actually begins to reduce risk. And, And so there is a consideration in the strategy of what might the government's role be to incentivize or induce that to happen? Um, because if it were to be at play, cyber insurance, we think that we'd have a system that increasingly by year over year gets safer. You're saying basically you think you need some kind of at least short-term federal backstop to enable the market for insurance to flourish which in turn would then enable insurance companies to start gathering data to quantify and underwrite and and get some actuarial insight into risk and behaviors that either reduce or increase risk, which would then ideally incentivize boards of directors to behave in ways that lower their rates. Is that... that So Chris Inglis agrees with David Chris. Um, (laughs) The government doesn't yet have an opinion where we've said we're, we're all in, we agree with that. But we put it on the table and say, we need to work our way through this because cyber insurance, just like insurance in other marketplaces, can have, has always had a, a beneficial effect. And so we need to work our way into it and through it. And I mean, just to be clear, David, Chris is the, is the person who has done the least work. Um, Brian <laughs> is the guy who actually has done some really <laughs> insightful writing on the insurance, cyber insurance marketplace, but I was just channeling uh, what I know he cares about and has thought a lot about. Well, I, I appreciate that. There might even be a separate lawfare podcast on that very thing if somebody <laughs> wants to go look. But let me use that, Chris, to transition a little bit away from the strategy, unless you have more you want to tell us about the strategy, into 
the ONCD proper as you have created and nurtured it. And let me get to it this way. I'm, I'm aware it's public knowledge. People can go find this in the Federal Register that your office, your old office, ONCD, has been collaborating with Treasury on a potential requests for public comment and potential rulemaking or legislative proposals around this cyber insurance issue. And so having been a veteran of the National Security Council, that's a little bit innovative, I think, for a White House office to be kind of half having the pen over something like that, or at least being involved in in, in pretty detailed ways in coordinating that. Is that something that you intended the office to be doing more and more of, not becoming operational, but becoming more involved in collaborating with other parts of the government in creating new stuff. Is that part of your vision? Yes. Uh, so, so I think one of the modalities that we kind of talk about all the time, and I'll kind of use the present tense, but of course I am no longer the cyber director, um, was to work by, with, and through others. The Office of the National Cyber Director will eventually have about 100 people. Um, that's a relatively small organization in the great scheme of things, given how broadly deployed cyber and cyber systems are. Um, and so it has to figure out how does it achieve a maximum effect. It's not going to do that by creating a vertical and then dictating, driving kind of things according to the vision of the Office of the National Cyber Director alone. It's going to do that by using its convening power. Uh, by mobilizing teams of experts, deep and sharp expertise that lives in a lot of other places and giving it leverage, giving it context, giving it a voice. Um, and so that collaboration is, I think, a preferred behavior for the Office of the National Cyber Director, understanding at the end of the day where its authorities stop and where other authorities begin. Um, but I'll just give you an example that's a little bit different than the one you suggested. If you read the statute for the Office of the National Cyber Director, you might come to the conclusion that a federal chief information security officer and a federal CIO, which traditionally have been in the Office of Management and Budget, should be lodged over in the Office of the National Cyber Director. Point of fact, many people suggested to me that that was the first fight that I should kind of pick and win. Um, which I thought was a little bit crazy. <laughs> Don't fight with OMB. <laughs> well, yeah, well, that too. <laughs> um, but, but there's a lot of muscle memory and there's a lot of expertise and, and irreplaceable momentum in the Office of Management and Budget. They've actually done that job in recent years very well. And so the counter to that was we proposed, why don't we actually combine what, what authorities are invested in the Office of the National Cyber Director with the extent capabilities and the implied authority and policy that's vested in the CISO and CIO, but dual heading the CISO to be the Deputy National Cyber Director for Federal Cybersecurity. Most folks would look at that and say, where's the trick? No trick. Um, one plus one can equal three. And that's what we did in the fall of 2021, and it worked fabulously. Now, in large part, because Chris Russia and Claire, the CIO over there, are hugely collaborative, very competent people. But they leaned in and they made it work such that we combined the inherent authorities and some of the resources we could deploy with what OMB had been doing for quite some time. That's a degree of collaboration that focuses on the horizontal when some might have focused on the vertical. Cyber is mostly a horizontal space. Well, as a taxpayer, thank you very much for saving my tax dollars uh, and not creating a new position. But since you sort of opened the door, Chris, and at the risk of creating PTSD, uh, having been present at the creation of the NCTC and the DNI and DHS and the National Security Division, 
How has it been working as the National Cyber Director with the National Security Council, the Cybersecurity cyber Infrastructure Security Agency, NSA, and the other key players uh, in our cyber defense? How, is that, how did that go for the first couple of years? Um, challenging, but but in a way that was actually a positive. And why do I say that? It turns out that the office of the National Cyber Director was not a matter of law and therefore didn't exist until about a month and a half after the election of 2020. And the Biden-Harris um, transition team had very thoughtfully and vigorously thought their way through how it handled cyber. And so they therefore built a, a somewhat new and novel construct on the National Security Council in the form of the Deputy National Security Advisor for Cyber and Emerging Technologies that was intended to handle all of the issues attendant to what the White House should do to create the right dynamics in cyberspace. So along comes the Office of the National Cyber Director, and we're trying to actually kind of trying to find a way, a niche within which we can make a difference. And that problem had been, quote unquote, already solved. Of course, no one was arrogant enough to believe it was entirely solved, but they'd addressed it and they were on to implementation. So that became challenging. And so the challenge for me in particular in the office um, writ large was to show that we could complement that work, that we had the resources and the relationships that would extend um, the influence the NSC intended to have and do things that the NSC would never have time or frankly had never kind of thought their way to do. And so I think we've done both of those things where we now have a complementary relationship as opposed to a competitive relationship between those two institutions. Um, it is still sometimes challenging when kind of two parties would show up, you know, at the sound of the guns um, and try to figure out what does each of us do such that we, to your point, serve the taxpayer as well. But that's our job. We have to do that. So, Chris, I mean, I've seen and participated in many public appearances and, and semi-public between you and Ann Neuberger, and the two of you seem to get on extremely well. And you do, as each of you has said separately, I think at various times, almost finish each other's sentences. But I mean, the theory, I think, struck a lot of outsiders as, as kind of funny because ever since at least PPD 41 in 2016, there's been a big emphasis on unity of effort. And I guess the theory seemed to be we're going to have twice as much unity of effort by having two. You said something earlier that, that there, we're still waiting for an executive order to really define the lanes in the road for ONCD vis-a-vis NSC and perhaps other entities. I mean. Do you wonder whether how, how long it's taken? <laughs> yeah, two-part answer. Um, one, um, an executive order that would define the roles and responsibilities of the Office of the National Cyber Director, independent of a larger strategy that defines what our aspirations in cyberspace are and what the broad assignment of roles and responsibilities um, would be, um, would be to put the cart before the horse. Yeah. So, so we thought it was necessary to get a national cybersecurity strategy done and out there. So we could then say inside of that, here is then the further um, granularity on the role of this party or that party. The Defense Department is about to release its cybersecurity strategy, um, but it will be downstream of the national cybersecurity strategy. The executive order for my office will be downstream of the broader national strategy for cybersecurity so that you can say we've got the horse in front of the cart as opposed to the other way around. That being said, I'll give this perhaps some thumbnail sketch of a role assignment between the National Security Council and the Office of the National Cyber Director. National Security Council typically uses the instruments of power that are uniquely held by the government 
whether that's intelligence, the military, financial instruments that the government holds, um, diplomatic remedies. It uses all of those extraordinary tools um, to bring about desired conditions in many domains of interest to include cyber. Um, And to pull those tools out of the National Security Council and put them in a silo named cyber uh, would deny us um, the opportunity to use those tools to achieve multiple outcomes, not just in cyberspace, but broadly across other domains of interest. Um, And I think it therefore remains the province of the National Security Council to consider at the most strategic level, how do we use those tools and deploy those tools to achieve the end conditions that achieve the national security we want? My job as the cyber national director um, was to work inside cyberspace in much the same way that a kind of a private sector CIO or CISO does to say, how do we actually array the technologies the role assignments, and the people so that we create the most defensible proposition that has the most, the, the biggest possible chance of serving the needs, the interest of the users of that digital infrastructure. How do we understand how it's actually being employed? And how do we then, using the assets inside cyberspace, actually defend it, right? That's the job that the National Cyber Director had. And it was more coach than quarterback, using Jen Easterly's language. Uh, The operational activities were largely assigned out to entities like CISA, the FBI, and such. So how does that all work at the National Security Council? That's where grand strategy and perhaps the kind of the use of those extraordinary instruments is largely defined. For cyber in particular, much like the Secretary of Defense does that for the military domain of interest, for the cyber domain in particular, you've got a national cyber director, and the execution of that then is done in the employment phase by the components. Is that complicated? You bet. Kind of what we're trying to do is to define the picture, but it's the video that matters, and then in an execution, it all does sort itself out. I would really encourage our listeners to just rewind and listen to that answer about five times because you could spend a career and possibly get tenure unpacking that. And I'll say you're a gentleman, a scholar, and I think your next career may be as a diplomat. If you take <laughs> that line and and sort of differentiate between NSC and ONCD the way you did, it, it does naturally kind of provoke the question then that you started talking about next, which is the relations then with CISA. So if you're square with Anne, are you square with Jen? I mean, did that side also produce challenges or was that easier because the roles were clearer as between a White House entity and a, you know, and a department or agency? It was relatively straightforward. It's not without its challenges. Um, I'll, I'll name one in particular, but, but relatively straightforward. Um, why? Because most of the operational assets are in the hands of CISA and to some degree the FBI, which is also a very important element in all of this. And therefore, any good coach, which is what Jen describes me as, and I'll describe her as the quarterback, doesn't enter the field you know, of, of play. They're responsible for the game plan, the assignment of roles and responsibilities to the player. Performance assessment doesn't go well. Step in and kind of change the game plan. That's what half times are for. But most of the operational activity takes place on the field. And so that's how Jen and I have approached it. And we talked frequently um, to make sure that that was, in fact, playing out in a degree of transparency and the ability to influence one another was hugely helpful in that. Now, there was one particular challenge, which is perhaps reflective of other challenges, which is, you know, Jen Easterly, as the director of CISA, is both someone expected to coordinate what are called sector risk management agencies. Um, kind of those are the agencies that have a specific relationship with a sector of interest. 
So the Department of Energy for the energy sector, the Department of Defense for the defense industrial base, and so on and so forth. But she at the same time is a sector risk management agency for, I think, eight of the sectors. And so sometimes it's hard if you're in that position to get up above the fray and to be as candid and transparent about performance assessment as you might be. So that's where we had a long discussion about what's the role of the Office of the National Cyber Director to stand above those hedgerows and to kind of do that assessment and perhaps the doctrinal formulation about what an SRMA does, how they all come together so that Jen could then execute that. I think we're in a really good place on that. But, but cyber has lots of intersections that are uncomfortable because it's an inherently interconnected space, not just technology, but roles and responsibilities. Chris, let's take it one more step out because there's a large number of players in the, in the federal government on cyber. But you and Anne and Jen are all proud alums of one very important agency, the National Security Agency. And so can you tell us a little bit about the role played by Rob Joyce and the new cybersecurity directorate there? Yeah, so that's a really good question. Um, so I think I get NSA high praise, a lot of credit for trying to figure out how they take actionable information that is turned up by their intelligence mission and put that in the hands of the actors in the realm of cyberspace. That's mostly the private sector who might then do something about that. And so the cybersecurity directorate, which retains a responsibility to ensure that the government understands what the deep and sharp attributes of systems that protect our national security should be, and, and therefore continues to think deeply about you know, the attributes of those systems and how do we get that right for the government, at the same time is trying to figure out how to deploy information to those who build systems of interest in the private sector that perform health and safety critical functions on behalf of the American people. And so Rob Joyce stands astride that organization um, they have built something up there that they call the Cyber Collaboration Center. For anybody that's ever visited NSA, the first surprise when you walk into that building will be that you're standing inside the building in the presence of natural light, right? There are all <laughs> sorts of you know, sunbeams shining in because it's an unclassified, unclassified space. space. Um, and, and, and so that is that is new and novel um, and I think is having a, a huge effect. Now, some would then immediately observe but isn't that the space that we want Jen Easterly to occupy at the kind of cyber security and infrastructure security agency at DHS or that FBI should occupy as they do perhaps threat response or the Department of Energy should do as they deal with energy sector needs? Um, the answer is we want all of them to essentially use their deep and sharp skills in a highly integrated complementary fashion in much the same way that the U.S. military still has an Air Force, an Army, a Navy, a Space Force that might vex one another as they recruit from the same population and, and buy for budgets, but actually bedazzles the world when in employment, they conduct something called joint operations. So I think that's the way forward. We want all of those things, deep and sharp capabilities to continue to kind of propagate themselves forward, but to do so knowing that they have to do that on the common battlefield or the common playing field of cyber. So Chris, looking ahead, based on your half century of government service, what issues would you predict are going to be top of mind for us in cyberspace in a year or five years that we're really not focused on today? Hmm. Uh, that's a good question. Let, let me give a two-part answer, both to observe where we are that we might not have imagined and where I think we might go that we perhaps further might amaze us. Uh, first, um, like climate change, um, we've suffered what I would describe as insidious onset 
kind of in the realm of cyber, meaning that there were certain conditions that were changing with sufficient slowness. We didn't see them. And, and those kind of long-standing, insidious kind of contributions to weakness and vulnerability in the systems of systems that we use have led more recently to unanticipated and sharp escalations in, in the observable threat. And, and one of those that I think in particular that we're currently suffering um, is the syndication of criminal behavior. Many ransomware actors don't actually execute all of the actions necessary to get into your system, to kind of do the survey of your system, to then kind of effect some action in your system and then negotiate with you. They syndicate that out. Um, that connectedness of the threats in this space is perhaps very surprising to us in the moment. It might be further surprising in the future. The only way to deal with being crowdsourced by the threats is to respond in kind to make sure that we crowdsource those threats. That's why a whole of nation approach, collaboration, not division of effort, is the right way forward. Now, to look broadly into the future, if I were to tell you what would surprise us, then it wouldn't surprise us. So I'm about to be um, kind of fallible. But, but I would say that I think that the biggest goal that we must have five, 10 years from now is to prepare users to remain right side up in a world of increasing scope and scale and sophistication of information and technologies that flow at them with a speed and a scale that um, human beings were not evolved to handle or whose provenance, especially with respect to data, is hard to discern. Now, it's too trite to say that critical thinking skills alone will help us navigate that future. I heard recently a speaker very thoughtfully say maybe what we're looking for is some degree of immunity for human beings so that they can navigate those unpredictable spaces. I think that's really important for us to not just think about how do we get the technology right, but to think how we prepare people so that they can thrive and prosper in that future. Um, and then perhaps the biggest thing that sits on the near horizon is artificial intelligence. I read today um, in the New York Times an article by Kevin Roos, I think it was, where he talked about how he's worried that technology will learn to influence human behavior, human users, in a way that would uh, perhaps mislead those users and kind of induce them to do destructive or harmful things that they don't know that they're actively participating in. I, I think that AI is perhaps one, um, an illustrative feature of the future, that we're not going to see it coming because it's going to arrive insidiously and it will grow out of the connection of many of these as opposed to being a single and sharp technology in and of itself. And, and the best preparation for that is to kind of keep a weather eye on it but to prepare our people who will be on the vanguard, who will be at the edge of this, such that they can exercise their skills, their powers of discernment to help us address that, to be the early warning and the early defenders. I want to know what you're doing next. You are too valuable a national asset, a national treasure to be allowed just quietly to fade away. And so while I want to respect your privacy, I'm curious, and I'm sure our listeners are curious if you have formulated any plans for what comes next. I'm going to stay active. Life is short. Um, so you know, I'll, I'll rebuild a portfolio of activities um, to include family and friends and travel, but to include those things that are intellectually stimulating in places where I can continue to make a contribution. Naval Academy has offered me a post to go back and to kind of be mentored by midshipmen and perhaps in, on occasion payback. Air Force Academy is something similar. So I'll start there. But I intend to stay active in this space. Um, I think that there's just too much left to be done. There are too many ways that I can continue to help kind of employ my experience um, in the company of others going forward. And I intend to do that. Well, you are definitely needed, sir. And thank you very much for spending this time with us. 
Yeah. Thanks a lot, Chris. That was a tour de force and extremely helpful and insightful. Thank you both. And um, good luck to us going forward. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare Podcasts by becoming a Lawfare material supporter at patreon.com backslash lawfare. You'll get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Look out for our other podcasts, including Rational Security, Shatter, Allies, and The Aftermath our latest Lawfare Presents podcast series on the government's response to January 6th. And check out our written work at lawfareblog.com. The podcast is edited by Jen Pacha Howell, and your audio engineer for this episode was Jay Venables of Goat Rodeo. Our music was performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thanks for listening. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.